Welcome to the Globig Podcast, where we talk to international expansion experts from around the world to make it faster and easier for you to take your business global. You're listening to the Globig International Expansion Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Anka Corbin. Today's hot topic is the second in a series of podcasts about global business communication and culture. Today, we're going to talk about how to do business in China. International culture is probably one of my favorite topics because I found over the years that much of the success and failure of international acquisitions and mergers and business expansions abroad actually hinges on understanding and working well with different cultures. And our guest today is Sabina Amen from Culture and Management and TI Communication. Sabina, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Anke, for having me. I am very much with you in terms of my fascination with cultures and the impact on effectiveness and business outcomes. And it's one of those topics that seems really soft or maybe abstract as well. And it gets very hard and very concrete if you run into difficulties with it. So I'm glad to share some insights and hopefully help support the progress of your clients. So tell us a little bit about your experience with China, because I know that you've had some extensive experience there and, and how that works into your company currently. Well, I may be dating myself a little bit, but the first time I was in China was actually in the late 1980s. And I've been back to China pretty frequently ever since. So my history with the Chinese environment is really one of seeing the changes in terms of really economic liberalization and country opening that's been going on now for 30 years in mainland China, and also seeing how the changes in mainland China are shifting, of course, the geopolitics for the region and, of course, the geopolitics and the geoeconomics for the world as well. Absolutely. China, I think, is one of those amazing opportunities, and yet it's also so rarely understood by Western cultures and businesses. And so, you know, I'm I'm really thrilled to be diving into, you know, what are some of the challenges when communicating with business people in China? Um, well, I think our first challenge is this sense of, whoa, this is really different and we may just not feel very confident about going there because it's hard to assess what really is similar, what really is different, what can we rely on that we know and what can we. Um, and I'd be really careful about any forms of exotic China thinking. China is a very vibrant environment. There's a lot of very savvy business people. Um, and over the last few decades, also quite a bit of exposure to Western business practices. So in the big cities in China, there's a lot more understanding between Western people and Chinese people than there was maybe 20 years ago. Um, that having been said, what you see is on the one hand more Chinese with English language skills, which can really make things a lot easier because 
learning Mandarin presumably would be the first step you would take is a long road. It's possible, but it takes a good lot of time to get somewhat proficient. And being faced in an environment when it's a Chinese-speaking environment to realize that you're actually illiterate because you can't read and write can be quite shocking. It's like, wow, now I am back at the cultural linguistic level of a four-year-old. So anything you can do to just get a little familiar with the Chinese language, just to take the edge off that, just sense of disorientation and that sense of, oh goodness, this is so foreign, I don't stand a chance, can be really useful. That's an interesting observation. It's absolutely true, right? We can't even try to make an assumption about what a word is because we can't read it at all, right? Yeah, and I think it's hard for us when we feel that we're suddenly so distanced from that capacity in terms of language to trust that there is a way to actually build good relationships. And of course, it's hugely important that we do that so that move into the unknown and into what are my strategies to build positive relationships is so important and to get over that very understandable and edge often of of just hesitation and anxiety. Do you find that it's in a business person's best interest to have a translator or someone that's kind of their advocate, if you will, given the the level of English competence that you see in, in Chinese business people, which is actually very, very strong for the most part. I guess it could be different depending on the industry, but for the most part, what I've seen is their English competency is, is very high. I'd say if you have a reasonable knowledge base where you say, okay, this is the level of English competency in my Chinese counterparts, you would probably not need a translator. And that would be true in certain industries and, and with younger people and in the big urban centers. But do find out what the reality is before you go. If you go somewhere more in the countryside or into an industry that isn't yet as global, those edges of where language competency in English ends in China can drop off pretty sharply. So that's something to really establish what to expect. The other part is if you're negotiating, having someone with really robust Mandarin skills in your team, not necessarily to officially translate, but to really be your eyes and ears in terms of capturing nuance and getting a, a much more sophisticated read on what's really going on may be extremely valuable. I can see that. Um, one of the things that we hear a lot about Chinese negotiations is that the what is being said and what is being inferred are not necessarily the same things. And that's both in the written contract and negotiations as well as just the overall relationships. Do you have any thoughts on expanding you know, how that Manifest, really. How does that look? What does that look like? Well, if you look at the idea of what is a negotiation, um, 
I think many U.S. business people would say, yeah, sure, we negotiate, but really we want to get this done. Yes, we want a solid contract at the end, and yes, we want a good we want a good deal, but other than that, it's also time matters. We want to get this done efficiently. And while China is a very fast-paced fast environment in, in many ways, for a lot of Chinese negotiation is about, okay, who are these people scoping out your relative power in the organization, scoping out the relative status of the organization overall, and, and really being quite strategic in, in their thinking. So the way that goes may be a lot indirect. Um, also, the communication style might be really different. I mean, a lot of Americans negotiate pretty much by just put it out there and let's talk about it. And that directness is not necessarily something you'll have reciprocated in China. Chinese communicators assume that there's layers to the communication and that what is being said may be just the first step and there's much more of an agenda yet to come. So even if you're really straightforward in your own style, it may well be that the Chinese assume that this can't be it and will expect other twists and turns to come. Um, and they're also more used to yeah, expecting things maybe to unfold and to have to watch and listen for cues. And that type of indirectness and expecting information sometimes to emerge and also a lot of the work like let's really check what's really going on and back channel information digging um, is not something you may be used to from US. So how do you bridge that gap? Because I think for the most part, and I have to share, I'm probably one of them. I'm not sure that I have that type of a skill, right? The ability to unfold as as you go through it and that you know, just really thinking in terms of these layered communications, it's, it is much more of a direct, here's what I'm thinking, what are you thinking, does this make sense, do we want to pursue? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think one of the things that's really valuable to do, especially if you know you're going into a, a really major negotiation where you're kind of going, this is, if this goes well, it's it's a huge impact and if it doesn't well it's really going to hurt so it's not one where you go okay i do that for practice and we'll see how it goes mm -hmm. um if it's a major negotiation i'd say find yourself somebody with negotiation experience in china and try and take them with um also get some training i mean Spend that day uh, a little bit on Chinese communication style and negotiation tactics. Maybe role play some situations that that might be coming up, and and really get more informed about the things that might appear when you negotiate that way, and also some of the the tactics you may come across, because it may 
it may be in the big cities that you come across a style that looks pretty Western and turns out to be pretty Western. And that's great. Then life's easy. Mm -hmm. And it may be that you come across a style that's much more strategic and artful, and then you need to be prepared. When you're in a negotiation and you don't agree, how do you do that within that structure? Because I think it's much more complex in China than it is in Western cultures. Mm. So, I mean, one of the, I mean, there's several considerations always. Um, of course, your Chinese counterparts are also looking for whatever they perceive as a good deal in terms of substance of a negotiation. And they may also be looking at a negotiation as understanding who you are and building a relationship and figuring out if they really trust you. So part of it is they are looking at, well, who are you? Do you have, what kind of status do you actually have compared to them? And can you get stuff done? Um, and letting people know who you are in the context of your organization is really important. Disagreement is fine in negotiations. It's just confrontation is less than ideal. I mean, some of it is take a break and talk, have quiet side conversations. Sometimes that helps. The other part is, do you know if you have the actual decision makers in that Chinese group, or are they actually collecting information to give it to somebody higher ranked to discuss before they can actually get back to you? So sometimes pushing harder is simply not going to work because you're not going to get the answer then. then. Um, the other part is tenacity is something that is valued in China. I mean, Chinese are usually excellent negotiators, and it is okay to keep repeating your position, to keep adding details, to um, not budge if you don't want to. Um, and the Chinese, if they want you to change something, they will come after you with great tenacity in turn. So you might feel, get the same questions that you even said no to five times over because keep tenacity in, in the Chinese world is something you do. You don't just stop after the first no if it's a serious negotiation. So be prepared for that. Um, that there's a lot of maybe pushing more so than you might be used to. Absolutely. I think we are not that used to pushing in general, right? What about the concept of hierarchies and just understanding? You had mentioned that a few times about, you know, knowing whether someone is even able to make a deal or speaking with the right people or, you know, how does that, what does that look like with a, a Chinese business negotiation? Well, knowing or, or finding ways to know relative rank and influence as well as what kind of networks of informal power people may hold is important. And in the beginning, this is possibly not very transparent, but that's one of the reasons for paying close attention to business cards because they can at least clue you in somewhat. Um, 
And that's also why it's important to have clear information about your own relative rank on your business card. So being low key there isn't going to help you. Um, the other part is that traditionally Chinese society is really seen as kind of vert vertically structured. And this has a lot to do with kind of a Confucian view of society where practically all relationships are hierarchical. So there is originally the, the parent and the child, and there is the emperor and the followers, and there is the older brother and the younger brother. So that kind of thinking, where am I relative to you in my status? And how do I then politely communicate with you in light of our relative seniority, age, um, rank, education, and so on, is still very much a part of thinking and feeling and relating in China. And um, so bringing, for example, somebody fairly senior from your company to China to negotiate would be a clear indication we are taking this seriously. Um, rank is not a pragmatic thing. It's also a consideration of respect and sincerity and showing we're serious about our intentions towards your Chinese negotiation partners. If they go like, oh yeah, rest of the world, that's China. Let's just send somebody young who can just see how doing business global is, who doesn't have much standing in the organization, would probably not be smart. Well, that makes sense. What about the dynamic between male and female? You know, it's also really an interesting concept. And how how is it as a female business executive or do you want to make sure you bring a male along? I, I'm just curious. In, historically, China has been quite a patriarchal society, no question. And in the big cities in the last 20, 30 years, I would say the, the gender dynamics have, have certainly changed. I mean, part of this goes back to actually the Communist Party, who put quite a bit of emphasis on gender parity in education, in everybody going, going to work and so on. And now you can assume that a lot of Chinese women are, are very well educated and are professionals and business savvy. Um, and as a Western, let's say, fairly senior businesswoman, um, the fact that I have a certain status within my own organization will likely work really well for me. I mean, the status will will be primary, especially if I know how to use it. Personally, I've not had really big gender issues in in China. Um, I think part of it is just the foreigner thing that you're not quite as much part of the established social context, so you have a little bit more leeway anyway. Um, and partly that if you have a fairly senior role, you can leverage that. Very interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about the relationship and trust building. Um, 
you had mentioned that part of the negotiation is this opportunity to develop trust, but what should the expectations be from someone coming from another country? Is this a, a longer-term prospect where you have to really spend time with them? Is there personal time involved in that? Will the Chinese share their personal time, or is it really business? And, um, you know, I'm just trying to get an, a sense of that. Yeah, I mean, I think what's what's really important is when to to take the time at a minimum to have time to go out and and eat together. I think it's also going to serve you really well to do just some homework on on China and the city where you're at, so that you can be gracious in the way you are in China by having a few things to say for yourself that are appreciative and positive about the city or about the architecture or about the food or the region, just kind of to, to demonstrate that, that you have an interest. Um, depending on what kind of negotiations your Chinese counterpart partners parts might, might well go, are these people here like, for the duration or are they just like here for quick money um, in and out? Be aware that unless you're an old, really experienced person in China, you are at a tremendous information advantage when you're there. And giving yourself a little bit more time just to listen and learn and to observe, um, that alone might, might be wise. And your Chinese counterparts will will look at you. Are you business savvy? But also, are you like who are you as a person? Um, do you seem confident? The question is: Are you a warm-hearted person? Is there a sense of kind of warm feeling connection that can be built with you? Or are you a cold feeling person that just seems to be, I don't know, not quite human? And the questions that Chinese ask may be really different in terms of wanting to know if you're married, if you've got kids, how old you are, and many other things, because they want to get a sense of who are you as a human being and in which human connections are you? Because that's one way to understand who you are and how to relate to you. Is it, so you had mentioned, so people will ask some questions that we commonly don't think are business questions, right? So personal questions. I've heard it's not even uncommon to ask about how much you earn and whether, you know, really lots of personal questions. Would you mm -hmm. say that that's true? Yeah, yeah. And it can be quite startling in the beginning where you go like, whoa, wait a minute. Who who invited you into, <laughs> into these questions? Um, and know that part of it is really a different way of establishing context to understand you as a person. Um, because it's a society that tries to understand people in their contexts more so than just as this isolated individual. And in order to do that, you need information. And of course, you don't have to answer each question that you're being asked, or at least not literally. 
say you're being asked how much are you making, you have a lot of leeway to deal with that. I mean, you could just smile and go, oh, well, never enough. Or you could smile and say, you know, I'm getting by. Or whatever it is that is still kind of a response, but not really giving, giving any substantive information. Where do you go to visit and have a business meeting? Do you bring gifts? And then if so, what's the appropriate type of a gift? How do you, how do, you do that? Is it something you do and wait for lunch? Or um, you know, how, well, how important is it, frankly? Well, it's funny because China is making so much stuff these days. Bringing gifts has gotten a lot harder. Um, <laughs> so if you're at the beginning of fairly formal negotiations or you're expecting something, somebody fairly high-ranking there, I'd say it's, it's a, a good idea because, again, it's a symbol of goodwill, of good intention. I mean, if there's something you can bring from the West that's kind of typical from your your region or or something that's just very Americana, that can be good. Um, do also look at the bottom of whatever you're bringing that maybe it doesn't say made in China. It's sometimes easily <laughs> overlooked where you go like, so that's something to to consider. If you know people a little bit better, um, and you know if they've got children, I mean, anything. A lot of things that are like educational and and or playful for the well being of the children of of a counterpart might be good. Simply because children are very cherished and. Um, that might be appreciated. But again, you need to know a little bit more before you go right there. In the beginning, I'd say small small gifts, plus you have your, your anti-corruption laws anyway. So you've got to be careful that you're not getting into trouble on the U.S. side with, with gift giving on the, on the compliance side. Mm, absolutely. But it is something that is maybe not expected, but it's certainly appreciated. Yeah, and it's part of relationship building. It's fairly common. And I'd like to really make it clear that gift giving in relationship-oriented cultures such as China is just that. That's gifts to, to kind of build goodwill and build the relationship and show that you're entering into a conversation, if you will, an exchange of hopefully fruitful give and take. Gift giving is very different from bribery. And sometimes Westerners get really confused and say, oh, yeah, they're just always bribing. No. Gifts and bribes are really different um, in that in Chinese culture, too, bribery is bribery. And a lot of Chinese complain about that and say, this has really gotten out of hand and we don't like it and we wish a lot of things were different. Um, so please don't assume that you can just go, whatever, buying your way into favors or something in China. First of all, there's quite a few honest people in China too, and you really don't want to offend them. Mm -hmm. um, and the other part is you do not know your environment well enough 
um, to risk something like that. I mean, an exposure to to the Chinese authorities could be your worst nightmare, and you really don't want any exposure to the to Western authorities either. So that's really something to to stay away from. What are some other things that you would want our listeners to know about doing business in China that I haven't asked you yet? Are there some key things that everyone should really learn and know about before they jump in? Oh, let's see. I mean, the thing to, I think, be aware of because the big cities look so modern and so technologically advanced, and they are, is that this whole thing like market capitalism, industri- many parts of industrialization are still quite new to many Chinese. I mean, this has been a massive wave of change in three decades. So while a lot of things may look um just like the U.S. or even newer than the U.S. Um, what's within the Chinese minds is based on thousands of years of history and often a way of making sense to the world of the world that's, that's really different. So watch for that trap that you go like from, oh, it's going to be very different. Then you arrive and you go, oh, that looks very familiar to stopping to be alert that there are genuine differences. That's fantastic advice. So we're going to make sure that we have all sorts of resources and information about, you know, culture and management and TI communications. What is the best way for um, people to get in touch with you? Is it just check, you know, connect via LinkedIn or send you an email? How would you like for them to reach out? LinkedIn works well. Email is great, um, given that I travel a lot. Um, the digital side is m- most robust simply because it works across any time zone where you or I might be at any given time. <laughs> Absolutely. I understand that. Sabina, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Globig International Expansion. This was another fantastic series on communication and culture in global business. And join us next time for another great podcast on going global faster, easier, more affordably, and more successfully. Don't forget to join globig.co for lots of free resources, our international expansion framework, training, and other business expansion packages. This is Anka Corbin, hoping that you all go global and go big.